In this episode of Between the Lines, BBC journalist Sana Safi interviews Max Gallian, research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies, and Florian Weigand, co-director at the Centre for the Study of Armed Groups at ODI and research associate at LSE. Max and Florian are editors of the recently published book, The Routledge Handbook of Smuggling. The book, which has just been made open access, offers a comprehensive survey of interdisciplinary research related to smuggling, reflecting on key themes and charting current and future trends. Thank you so much. A welcome Florian and Max to IDS. Thank you for joining us. I had a chance to scan through your fascinating book last night. And the words that came to my mind were timely and very rich in content. I felt that this was definitely the first time that I was looking at a book that brings together work on smuggling from different disciplines, different continents and different discussions in one volume. In over 30 chapters, you cover themes such as mobility, borders, violent conflict and state politics. But at the heart of it really is people, men, women and children, the lives, the daily lives and livelihoods, the livelihoods made and the livelihoods lost. Florian, tell us more about the book. Yeah, thank you very much. I think uh, this was an excellent summary of the book, which really, really summarizes the idea of the book of putting the focus on, on people that kind of are part of the smuggling industry, the smuggling business, whatever we want to call it. And I think the idea for the book really was when you think about smuggling, everyone has kind of an image in their mind. Everyone, there's like something coming up, like some person with a backpack in the mountains. And we really wanted to engage with this image that people have in, the, in their minds and question if that's actually true. And in order to do that, we thought it would be really helpful to kind of bring people from various disciplines together who kind of looking at this from different perspectives, whether it's economists, historians, sociologists, and see how out of each of their disciplinary perspectives do they look at smuggling? Because up to today, at least we haven't been able to find anything that really puts smuggling at the center rather than at the margins where we kind of assume it happens at the borders and kind of put it at the center of our attention. And that really was the idea for this book. Yeah, and Max, why smuggling? Why does it matter? I think as, as Florian pointed out really nicely, the, the diversity of the different perspectives here is part of the value of the book because it brings diversity together, but it's also part of an argument. It's part of um, making a case for the fact that smuggling has its own story to tell, despite the fact that it's often a story that's told at the margins. It's often a story that's told at the margins when we discuss sanctions. It's often a story that's told at the margins when we discuss border security. It's a story that's told at the margin when we discuss how globalization has restructured international trade. Um, we're recording this while um, we, we see a, a really worrying conflict uh, develop uh, between Russia and the Ukraine. So smuggling is, is discussed in the context of how arms get into theaters of war, how, um, how food and, and uh, you know, the, the kind of livelihood supports get into theaters of war. We, we've had this discussion very substantially in the context of Yemen and various other armed conflicts recently. So it's, it's often at the margins. And I think through bringing all these margins together, the, the argument that the book makes is if you center it, if you put smuggling at the center of it, um, you can learn things about it that then inform all these other discussions. And as, as you pointed out really, really nicely, 
it helps putting the people at the center. Because again, when smuggling is put at the margins, we easily slide into these caricatures of the smuggler. And I think one of the things the book does really well and the, the, the different authors that we've brought together in the book does really well um, is center their perspective a bit more, tell their story a bit more. And through that, I think, give us a better understanding of war economies, of conflict, of how power and, and money and regulation are restructured in, in the kind of the global economy that we're experiencing. So it, from taking it as a center, it informs a variety of, of topics that are closely connected to it that we talk a lot about today. Mm. I, I'm really glad you mentioned the timing, Max. And that's what I wanted to come to next, uh, Florian. Why should the policy sector or, or all sectors concerned take interest in this topic? Yeah, as, as Max just outlined, the, the current context of the Ukraine is a good example of how, how relevant this is at the moment. So smuggling comes up again and again, but usually at the sidelines of the discussions. So for instance, of course, there's a big discussion now about refugees, about people escaping from violence but we rarely ever hear their stories. So it is just these, these things that come up at the margins of a debate. And I think the book can actually bring the perspectives really together and see, okay, what's actually, what, what does smuggling have in common? Is there certain commonalities across various sectors? So for instance, does it even make sense to compare the smuggling of people to the smuggling of goods? Or are we talking about very different things here? So of course, humans are humans. So. Is, is this this imaginary, again, we have in our minds, it's been coming up a lot in the poly discourse, particularly when we talk about human mobility, about these people, smugglers, there's this almost this like evil imagery constructed, but what, what does this actually look like in reality? What kind of people are involved in smuggling or perhaps helping people to cross borders? What are the motivations there? But we can also take this entire discussion to what again, Max mentioned before, like weapons, how do weapons actually get into conflict zones? Are they already there? How do they disperse after a conflict? So I think there's a lot to be learned from smuggling in the context of armed conflict in particular, but also beyond that. And I think we also shouldn't be making smuggling, we sh it shouldn't be this dramatic issue either. So I'm really glad that in the book, we're not talking about conflict only, we're not talking about cocaine and opium only, even though of course these are very, very important issues. But for many countries in the world, actually the smuggling of licit ordinary consumption goods is so much more important. So for instance, we have a chapter that engages with the smuggling of rice in the Philippines. And issues like that are easily forgotten just because they, they don't grab international attention, international headlines, who really wants to write a story about rice smuggling. But it is so important for the livelihoods of people. So I think the book kind of on the one hand covers these kind of issues that we really that get international attention easily, but they also get into the smuggling of goods that perhaps are as relevant, but easily forgotten in the day-to-day -day discourse. Yeah, and as we said, all of this is done by people. And uh, the next question I wanted to ask was, how important were lived experiences, Max, for developing this book? I mean, it's, it's funny that Florian and I are sitting here and uh, uh, we're very happy to sit here and, and talk about the book, but maybe this is the point to, um, uh, to bring up the fact that there's, there's over, over 40 people involved in this book and uh, uh, we have a huge variety of, of authors and it was something that was really, really important to us when we put this together because so much research on smuggling has been done. I mean, there's, there's some kind of larger um, cross-national uh, comparative study, there's some quantitative work, but so much research traditionally has been done 
by people spending extensive time in borderlands and, and trying to foreground the, the perspective of, um, of people from the borderlands um, in a way that Florian and I, between the two of us, never could. Um, so I think one of the book things the book does really well uh, through this diversity of different people, we, people who've done research in, in anywhere from the Philippines to, uh, to India to uh, borders in, in sub-Saharan Africa and, and conflict areas in Latin America, um, is, is that kind of that, that diversity speaks to, to different lifting experiences. And I think we can learn important things from that. Um, we can learn the fact that um, in many border regions across the world, uh, smuggling is a really, really crucial part to sustaining local livelihoods. Uh, we learn the fact that um, the way that people imagine smuggling politically um, is, is really diverse. It can be a point of resistance, of survival, um, or it can be uh, part of kind of long-standing arrangements and, and um, things that are kind of uh, granted to borderlands uh, so that they can sustain themselves. Um, one of the things I think the book does really well and we we're really happy about is that it foregrounds some of those perspectives that are not often as, as central. We have a, a chapter on a kind of um, gender and smuggling and, and the role of women in smuggling that is often a little less obvious, um, but is really, really crucial to kind of sustaining to sustaining wider networks. So, so I think that's, that's really, really important, but it also brings together a really nice comparative element. Um, we have these different chapters um, in the middle of the book on, on different goods, which on the one hand, you know, covers a lot of the goods that people want to read about. But when you start reading them back to back, when you start reading these different chapters by different authors back to back, a kind of comparative mindset sets in quite, quite quickly. So it doesn't just foreground local perspectives, but also shows how they're different, how the context shapes this, how the nature of the goods shapes this. So I think that's, that's something I'm really, really happy we managed to achieve here. Yeah, and when I was looking at the book and, and the chapters, it comes across really clearly. And I think that's one of the strengths of this book as well, because I send it to one of my friends who's doing PhD at Oxford, and he said, oh, he's going to send it to his other friend, who are both really interested in these issues. And, and the, the words were, wow, this is so incredible. Um, so I think it, it comes across as very user-friendly and um, easily you can get into the issue, which is, which is great. When you were writing the book, Florian, were there things that surprised you? What did you learn? Yeah, I, I learned a lot. So, and many things surprised me, I really must admit. So as, as the book is bringing together all these different perspectives, and maybe this is also a good opportunity to actually really say big thanks to everyone who participated in this project, because handbooks are a lot of work from an academic point of view, but perhaps don't always give you the credit that a journal article would give you. So we're really appreciating of the time that people took to participate in this project and to share their perspectives. But so yeah, reading, having the opportunity to read all these chapters in advance, um, I learned a lot and a lot was actually quite counterintuitive. So for instance, if we think about the role of the state. So we usually, because we have this image in our mind and it's really difficult to move on from it. So in my mind, even though I work on smuggling, I still have an image in my mind. It's, it's really, really difficult to move beyond that. And um, we have this idea that smuggling happens in opposition to the state. It's happening in the dark, it's hidden. But de facto, we often see that the state is very heavily involved in actually ready, regulating smuggling. It is, it is not happening in a lawless area. And we have a couple of chapters that really illustrate it really well, how even perhaps smugglers get their position or get empowered in their position through good connections with the state. So it is not necessarily something that is separate. And similarly, as we discussed conflict before, I, I think there's also this idea that is quite widespread that 
smuggling really drives conflict and smuggling is a massive opportunity that evolves out of conflict. That's of course true. So there's the survivalist dimension that we have. People in conflict zones need goods, need access to goods that are very difficult to get to. So, so conflict zones, of course, there's a big demand, particularly for, for food stuff. Um, and also we see in the context, for instance, from Afghanistan, but also Myanmar, that goods, including illicit goods, such as some drugs, come out of conflict zones. However, we also see in some of the chapters that illustrate that's, that smuggling is actually a very long supply chain that goes, that goes through various countries that actually smugglers try to avoid conflict zones many times because they are also business people and they, they really don't like unpredictability. And conflict zones, by definition, come with a lot of unpredictability. So um, I think it also, the book kind of helps to kind of understand the perspective of people who smuggle for whatever the reason may be, and how they kind of navigate these very complex political and social terrains, and that often results in, in findings that are fairly counterintuitive, at least to me. Yeah, and uh, the role of the state is really important, and we will come to that later as well. But one of the things I've been hearing lately um, with the sanctions on Iran, the US international sanctions on Iran, what I've been hearing from Afghanistan was the smuggling of dollars. So everyone I've spoken to, they would say, you know, dollars being smuggled to Iran and there is no dollars left and blah, blah, blah. And and yeah, it, it, you know, this... this um, in a way, this coordination, but also um, not so much in line with what is legal and right, is fascinating. And were there any things you left out of the book, Max? And if there were, why? Yes, Sana, you put your like finger into the wound straight away. Um, we really wanted a chapter on illicit financial flows and and um, and currency. As, as, as you highlight, it's a really important part of the picture. It's a really important uh, part that um, can drive smuggling flows, but it's a really important part of the wider financial operations there. It's really difficult to edit a handbook of this scope, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so uh, unfortunately, that is, I think, on, on my end, the, the main regret in this book. It would have been really great to have a chapter on that. Uh, thankfully, there is there is excellent work on that. Uh, you know, Alex Copham and, and other people are, are doing really interesting work on it, and we're, we're happy to to point in that direction. There's been a couple of kind of good open access resources on that recently, but yeah, it is it is one bit that we are we were kind of missing in the book. Um, and I think it's important because it um, drives kind of from a policy perspective on what you mentioned earlier this kind of narrative of entanglements, right? This narrative of, you know, smuggling is connected to financing, is maybe connected to terrorism, organized crime and arms and all these things. And one of the things that I think the book brings out really nicely um, is the fact that, yes, these things must maybe be connected, but they aren't always. And these connections are conditional, they're context dependent. And often actors that we think are in cahoots with each other have very, very different interests or very, very different perspectives. And I think that provides a really important counterpoint to a policy narrative that often kind of lumps all these things together and labels them illicit. Um, so, and, and, and finance plays a big role in that. So it would have been nice to have that additional uh, puzzle piece there, but I do think the book does, does a good job in tearing and kind of in teasing out some of these, these differences between what we often conflate. Uh, and Florian, what would you like to change as a result of writing this book? I think there are a couple of experiences that I'll really draw on. So perhaps first of all, Less, thinking less about smuggling, but really about this, this book as a project. I thought it was surprisingly easy and so much fun and so helpful for me to actually work in a multidisciplinary way. 
So I think in academia, we often think within our silos. We have like a, a certain way of viewing the world and depending on how we're socialized. But this, with this book project, I guess we, we really just try to see what happens to bring all these different people together. And I think it worked amazingly well. So I think by having something that centers the discussion, such as smuggling, it really enables people from various perspectives to kind of actually work together and think about one issue together. And um, for me personally, this was really an experience that I'll, I'll use in my future work to kind of actually try bringing people together and speak to each other centered around a certain theme. And I think there's a, a lot of potential for academia more generally to, to work along these lines. Yeah. And when I was looking at the chapters, you've got some interesting uh, chapters there. One was the toleration of smuggling. And I thought, given the policy debates at the moment, uh, you know, it, it, it helps so much to learn more about those issues, um, which we don't, I think, from what, what I understand, I don't usually hear um, themes that are along those lines or, you know, the, the criminalization of um, smuggling as well. And Max, how can this knowledge be used to shape development thinking? I think it actually works surprisingly well. So on the one hand, what we fully expected is because we've put this book together that has these many chapters and, you know, has this huge complexity. Um, we thought the main lesson that would come out of it is context is key. And it really depends on what you're looking at and what particular context and, you know, and, and, and breaking it up from that big global picture of smuggling into, you know, the individual dynamics. And I do think the book makes that point, and that is, and I think it's a valuable point, but it's always a difficult point to make with policymakers because it's a bit uh, nitty gritty and, it, um, uh, and it, it can be a bit kind of obvious. But what I thought, what I was really happy um, that the book does is I do think it, it also serves as a counterpoint to some really dominant policy narratives that we need to question. And I think as that, it, it actually has some real policy bite. And I think two of the narratives, one is this idea, again, that I mentioned earlier of, of the kind of uh, entanglements that everything is connected and, you know, that it's all this kind of illicit world that's in cahoots with each other and trying to understand a little bit how that, that breaks apart and how these different kind of groups differ, how different activities differ, how people transition through different activities and how people in borderlands really understand them. So I think trying to, first of all, kind of open that black box push us back against a simplistic policy dialogue, uh, policy discourse that often kind of puts this all together. But I also think another point the book makes in an interesting way is one around infrastructure. We've often reacted to smuggling globally from a policy perspective with infrastructure, with border walls, with you know, more security checkpoints and surveillance and all these things. And I think the book on the one hand, through showing the politics of smuggling, through showing how states often engage with them, how local communities engage with them, can often show us how this infrastructure is not always as effective as we think it is because it gets embedded in these political structures because the same forces that get stuff across borders can also get stuff across walls. But also one thing the book does really nicely um, is I think it highlights the risk of infrastructure as well, especially the um, chapters that we have on um, human mobility and, and, and trafficking and smuggling really show the dangers of the securitized approach that uh, many states have taken to smuggling and uh, ask us to re revisit some of that. So I don't think the book puts forward one solution or, or one clear policy proposal, as would be surprising uh, for a project that 40 academics uh, have been involved in, because usually, you know, you get 40 academics, you get 80, 80 policy proposals. But I think it pushes back against some narratives in a, in a really insightful way. And, and I'm quite happy with how that turned out. Is smuggling by definition an activity that happens hidden or in the dark, Florian? Because 
the commonly associated um, or a, smuggling is commonly associated with crime. But is that always a good way to categorize it? Yeah, no, that is a really, really excellent question. Of course, one we've kind of engaged with a lot across these chapters. So we define smuggling, perhaps just to, to briefly mention that as, as an economic activity across a border that violates legal framework. So one could say that by definition, just purely legally speaking, it is criminal, or at least it, it kind of is, is in conflict with the law. However, the reality on the ground looks is often much more complex. So of course, um, these, these economic activities are often very embedded in, in communities. So we have to understand on the one hand that borders have been constructed politically. So of course, there's the legacy of empires and colonialism that have often divided communities um, and kind of constructed very artificial barriers of, of trade. Um, but then also, of course, these legal frameworks are politically constructed and follow a certain rationale. So, and that might be very different in different countries. So it is very, very difficult to, I'm very hesitant to use the word crime at all in this context, to be quite honest. I think it doesn't really help us much analytically or uh, kind of theoretically. Does it happen in the dark? Yeah, sometimes I would say it does happen in the dark, but just like trade, so trucks might be going at night, but they might also be going during the daytime. It is it is informal trade ultimately that that's going across borders, and um, more often than not, I would assume it's it's happening as much during daytime as it is during nighttime. Because coming back to this perspective of the smuggler, who's ultimately a business person who kind of does informal trade across a border, perhaps navigating a, a river or a road during daytime is much easier rather than at nighttime. So. I think it is it, it is really important to move beyond this kind of imagery that we have in our mind. Um, yeah, and to kind of move on from concepts such as crime and something that's ha happened in the in hidden ways. However, that is of course this kind of informal trade that that I was been, I have been talking about that kind of happening visibly. But then there's of course smuggling that's happening in more invisible ways. And I think that's something you've been pointing at before, for instance, the financial dimension. Uh, and that's something, of course, just like also the legal financial transactions that are happening very much in the hidden. Um, so again, I think the frameworks hidden and crime don't really help us. It's it's more important to kind of look at how does this how does this work in a in a trade relationship and uh, what actors are involved and what are local perceptions in a community in terms of is this legitimate trade or not, rather than applying kind of external analytical frameworks for this. And, and the role of the state we mentioned earlier and we, we touched upon briefly, Max, can you tell me more about the role of the state in smuggling? Yeah, I was thinking about that as, as Florian was trying to answer the, the hidden question, when is it hidden? And I was asking myself, well, it always depends on hidden from whom, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, many of these activities might not be hidden from border communities, but they might be hidden from states. Uh, some might be, you know, states might be very aware of, uh, others, you know, states might not be aware of, but formal companies are. So it always depends a little bit. And I think the role of the state, as Florian pointed out earlier, is, is one of the more counterintuitive ones here. We um, often originally assume that states in generally are trying to avoid smuggling at all costs, that, you know, this is uh, something that uh, quite fundamentally tackles what we think of a state authority, you know, the ability to control borders and to collect taxes are very deeply ingrained with our understanding of what, what states do and what sovereignty looks like. 
And um, so we often assume that, that the role of the state here in, in kind of a cat and mouse game is, is you know, that, that, that they're trying to detect uh, smuggling wherever possible and enforce their rules whenever possible. Now, anyone who's ever looked at smuggling knows that's not always the case and uh, rules are not always enforced strictly. And then I think we often tend to go the other way and assume that, well, that's all corruption. Then. That's all, you know, that happens in these developing countries with their terrible low governance and it's all their corruption. And that's also, I think, a, a, an unhelpful simplification. So I think the way to look at this, and, and Florian and I have done this a little bit in, in work outside the book as well, is try to create um, kind of different categorizations for different relationships between smugglers and states. And in some cases, states do try to find whatever they can and, and interdict whatever they can and really try to um, kind of play a role of an enforcer. We do have cases where kind of petty corruption is, is dominant. So, you know, where a particular individual in a, in a port or a harbor kind of is, is taking bribes. But the really important thing to look at is I think the cases that don't fall into either of these categories. We have a lot of cases around the world where forms of smuggling are tolerated across borders because they historically always have, because they're a way for communities to, to make a living. And that is something that states recognize. And um, that is something where uh, states might be quite willing to kind of overlook uh, the, um, the breaking of their own rules. They might be very aware of what's going on there. We must also think about cases where states might not be aware of it, but where formal companies are highly complicit in uh, smuggling operations because it helps them get their goods into markets cheaper. It makes the helps them, you know, uh, open up new markets. Um, I think it's also important to break up the state here and think about different elements of the state might have different interests here. Um, so I think going beyond the, and we, we have plenty of historical examples where the state itself is quite interested in smuggling. I mean, today we can think about um, regimes such as, you know, North Korea that have an interest in, in getting access to certain goods, but also historically Florian and I have uh, always had a longstanding um, local interest in uh, Eastern Germany and the way that Eastern German regime is getting involved in smuggling. And again, from a very, very high um, point within the state hierarchy, smuggling was tolerated and encouraged because it got luxury goods to, to local elites. So I think looking at that diversity beyond the state as a pure enforcer or beyond kind of local corruption, try to think about what's the politics behind that? What are the interests and structures behind that is a really, really important step to take. So you were saying it's really not helpful to look at the role of the state in terms of oh, such and such country is a liberal democracy where governance is uh, poor, weak, then uh, yes, of course, they will have uh, smuggling issues, but a stronger state, a more expanded state would not have it. So that's not the wrong, not, not the right way to look at it. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, and that also changes the global narrative a little bit. I think there's a real issue, especially on policy, when we think about smuggling, where there's an assumption that smuggling happens in borderlands of fragile and developing countries where there's corruption. That's, that's kind of, again, this, this kind of simplistic view. And I think taking a more global view and looking at the fact that, you know, smuggling also happens in Europe. And uh, if we think about the consumption markets for some of the kind of most notoriously smuggled goods, such as, you know, if we think about cocaine in the city of London, if we think about, um, you know, financial crime in the city of London, um, it's, it's really important to look at these things in a larger global uh, context and not just focus on uh, borderlands in, uh, you know, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. One other area that comes to mind is art. The art industry, the, the stolen and smuggled art industry is prevalent in richer and more developed countries, uh, one could argue, uh, given some of the stories that have been coming out lately from countries like Afghanistan. And, and 
Syria and other areas, how their art and ancient um, artifacts have ended up in the museums of Paris, Germany, and, and other European countries. That's really important. Uh, thank you so much. And what role does smuggling play for, or in today's conflict, uh, Florian? which is very much related to what we were just talking about. Yeah, and perhaps just one additional thought on, on the global north, as, as we were just discussing that before getting to the conflict I mentioned. I think it also really helps to think about, if we think about smuggling in Europe, big container ports. So if we think about a place like Hamburg or Rotterdam, I we don't, of course, have any data on this, but it is very easy to imagine that much more smuggling is happening there than in a remote borderland in, let's say, southern Thailand or something like that. But it is it, it is really happening at the heart of, of the global north as well. And there's nothing that is just limited to kind of supposedly weak or fragile states at all. Um, but yeah, getting to the conflict I mentioned, I, I've, I've, as I mentioned a little bit earlier uh, before already, so I think conflict plays an important role. So it, it would be wrong to kind of disconnect those things completely. Um, armed groups, but also state actors, not necessarily entire state, but state actors benefit from smuggling. It's kind of just like normal, not normal trade, a good that is taxed often at checkpoints, at border crossings. So conflict parties may benefit from, from smuggling activities, but I would argue they would also from, from licit trade in, in normal cases. Um, however, from a business point of view, smuggling smugglers, as I mentioned before, often really try to avoid conflict zones. It is just not helpful transporting illicit goods through a highly, uh, often area of ongoing violence. And they may try to get through slightly more institutionalized areas where there are rules in place. Um, but nonetheless, there is uh, demand and supply that kind of comes out of conflict zones. Thank you. And to counter smuggling, Max, many countries build walls and invest in border infrastructure. You, you talked about that uh, briefly. Does that help addressing the issue? It really depends, which I know is, is, is a boring answer, um, but it's certainly not the uh, catch-all solution that it's meant to be. It's clear, it's, it's easy to understand why there's a fascination with walls. It's easy to understand why there's a fascination with border, in, uh, border infrastructure. And I found that really powerful when I when I talk to politicians, when I talk to policymakers around this, you can really see that there's an imaginary in people's heads. You know, we're just going to close it down. We're, we're going to, you know, build a wall and that's and, and we'll have control over it. And, and it, it fits so nicely with kind of how states often think about themselves and the kind of imaginary of borders and the things that come in from across from abroad. So what border infrastructure does is it raises the costs for some actors of getting things across borders. So what it often does is it certainly is, is, is a very severe impediment for the kind of small scale smuggling that borderland communities often engage in, that it acts against very effective, effectively, typically. Now, the question is, is that really the smuggling we want to act against? Often, this is the type of smuggling that supports economies in borderlands. That often also supports social stability in borderlands. It's often something that is embedded in livelihoods for a very long time. So yes, wars are very effective against that, but that's not necessarily the smuggling we always want to act against. Now, the type of smuggling, that's often a larger policy concern. So especially smuggling of narcotics, weapons of, of, of um, uh, certain individuals that you know might be on... Um, on blacklist, these are often more heavily capitalized networks. So they often um, are less deterred by infrastructure. 
It's also worth pointing out that a lot of smuggling, as Florian mentioned earlier, goes through border crossings. It goes through formal points of entry. So there, again, certain infrastructure is, is not that effective. There's also a real risk that making smuggling more expensive, which infrastructure does, might lead certain networks to consolidate. It might uh, lead a consolidation from you know, multiple smaller networks into one larger network that's able to um, afford these costs of getting across. None of which is to say that you know, states need to just open it all up and, and not engage in, in border infrastructure. But it is to say that border infrastructure has heterogeneous effects on different networks. It has effects on people in borderland communities. Um, and we need to very carefully think about what the actual effect of these things is and what the political effect of it is. And often it looks very good to certain constituencies. It's often driven by how it looks to certain constituencies. It's also, also often driven by how it looks to certain industries. There's big money to be made in securitization. Um, but I think in order to do this better, we really need to think more about what are the effects on different goods, on different routes? How does smuggling actually work? What are the effects on border infrastructure on communities that live near the border? Um, and how do these things interact with previous practices? And we hope the book makes a bit of a contribution to helping us understand that better. So, so far, these decisions are made without any data at hand. It's just a purely political uh, impulse. I think, unfortunately, that's often the case. Yeah, but there is very good, there is very good literature out there, particularly in the field of, for instance, borderland studies. There are a lot of re very detailed case studies, but I don't think that the knowledge that is generally generalized from uh, that is generated, sorry, from these like local context really finds its way into the policy debates. But we hope that kind of this book makes a step into that direction and kind of makes it a bit more accessible what's out there because there's so much interesting work. It, it definitely should. And, and the book covers a huge diversity of different goods that are smuggled, as we, we were just talking about, from cocaine to rice and even human tra trafficking. Some would say, does it even make sense to treat these together in the same volume? Aren't they different? I know that's an excellent question. Um, and something we really, like when we put together this book, something we really grasping with as well like what to include uh, doesn't make sense for instance and that's perhaps the question we really thought about the most shall we include human mobility in in this book um or our, because we really don't want to come across as that we're treating people like goods because it is it is such a different dynamic happening but i think there is a lot to be learned so just like there is a lot to be learned from putting different disciplines together there's a lot to be learned from putting different goods together and to be kind of reading them in context one after the other and seeing, okay, what's actually similar here? What's different? Um, and what can we perhaps then generalize on, on, on the basis of this? So yeah, it's there, there are challenges by putting all of this into one book, admittedly, but we hope that kind of the advantages outweigh those, those um, also kind of ethical challenges that evolve out of this. And to Max, for people interested in the gender aspect of it, uh, they might ask whether smuggling is always a male activity or women also play a part. Yeah, and again, I'm, I'm very glad we've got a, a very good book, uh, so very good chapter on the book and that work can summarize some of these topics much more eloquently than, uh, than I can. So I can, I can highly recommend that. Um, but I think it is really important to highlight that while men are often most visible in smuggling, and we do think, if, you know, if, if we think about um, the people who carry goods across the border, who people who are, you know, often in the news because they come up as kingpins and key smuggling networks. Um, 
men are overrepresented in many contexts. They aren't always. I mean, I've done uh, my, my PhD partly on, on smuggling between Morocco and the Spanish enclaves of Ceuta Melilla, where women play an enormous role in also transporting the goods across the border. Um, but I think what the chapter in, in the book highlights really, really nicely is that even when we don't see men, uh, when we don't see women as presently in, you know, bringing the goods across the border or as, you know, the, the main kinpins in those networks that make it into our newspapers, that doesn't mean that even in those networks where, where men are very visible, women aren't active at all. Um, women still you know, can play as central or as intermediaries and, and as, as, as various kind of figures in, in these networks. So I think taking a more holistic views at these networks immediately also kind of uh, highlights um, the kind of gender dynamics within them. I think it's also important to highlight that women are also, you know, part of borderland communities, whether they're directly involved in smuggling or not, and smuggling really, really shapes borderland communities. So one of the things I'm also really happy about in, in the book from a gender perspective um, is that we have a bit of work on, on community um, responses to smuggling and, and kind of community resilience and the fact that the, how it affects borderland communities, but also how communities can, can try to engage with these effects. And again, once we look at that, women again, uh, very quickly become very visible. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really happy about that aspect of the book, aside from the fact that we also have a, um, a gender equal set of authors with which in, in a discipline which uh, often sometimes uh, kind of closely cozies up to security studies isn't, isn't, uh, isn't standard yet, but hopefully increasingly will be. And Florin, the book has an unusually extensive section on methodologies on how to study smuggling. Why is that? What is the thinking behind that? Yeah, um, we're really actually happy to have the section on methodology and that I think it very much involves our own experience of doing research on, on borderlands and smuggling where we thought it would be before getting into this, particularly before we're doing our PhDs, it would be really useful to actually have some guidance on this because there, some people have done, many people have done research on smuggling, but we haven't really have like a written way of actually how this is done the best way. And so we thought it would be really helpful to kind of have different perspectives on how this could be done. So we have one chapter that engages with qualitative methods, one that engages with quantitative methods, but then also one that kind of asks slightly bigger questions. So kind of what kind of ideologies are we bringing to the table when we're doing research on the smuggling in our minds? And also more applied questions like what are the actual risks? What are the ethical challenges when doing that kind of work? So we, we kind of hope that by people who, for people who are new to the field who want to do something on smuggling in the future, that this can be helpful guidance. Part of the um, idea behind this book was also to kind of try to bring this field together and try to think about where do we go from here? What have we learned about smuggling so far and how do we need to learn about smuggling differently in order to better learn about smuggling in the 21st century? And I think that's also a thing that the, these, these methodology chapters do really nicely. They don't just summarize, you know, how do you study smuggling, but they also think about how have we studied it so far? And how has the way that we've studied it influenced what we've learned about it? How has, you know, have methodologies so far shaped the knowledge that we have? And where do they need to go from here in order to, to get us a, a better understanding of these things? So I think especially like chapters by like Prego um, Dobler's chapter on where are we studying smuggling and how is that influencing what we learn about it? Um, but also kind of the ethics and morality of it that, that Thomas Hiskins writes about in his chapter. And I think those bits are both hopefully helpful to people who, who want to study this, as, as Florian pointed out, but also hopefully helpful to have a discussion about where are we coming from as a field more broadly and how do we need to think about this differently going forward. And what are you working on next, Florian? 
Well, Max has already revealed it a little bit. So we are really, really interested in kind of taking a couple of steps back and looking at history and looking at the, the border within Germany or the divided Germany um, between the East and the West and look at the old records and how actually what we can learn about smuggling at these days, because we actually have an example there of a border that was highly fortified. So we really hope that we can generate some insights into some of these questions that you asked earlier, what does border infrastructure actually do? What are the politics that surround those kind of border infrastructure? How can smuggling perhaps still proceed? Uh, what kind of goods are smuggled for what reasons? Who benefits? So we really hope to kind of be able to engage with these, these questions a little more there. Uh, but we're also having a couple of other projects that we're really interested in the conflict dimension that you also raised. And for instance, the role that armed groups play in the smuggling sector, for instance, by, by taxing goods, whether it's smuggling or informal trade. So that's another project where we kind of, with a bigger group of people currently trying to dig a little deeper. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a chapter on um, on tobacco smuggling uh, for, for the handbook, and it's uh, certainly something that uh, I've kind of got got my teeth into and, and I've gotten really, really interested in, um, especially also because I, I work on a, for a research center that thinks about taxation. And um, so looking at the way in which um, the tobacco industry is often pushed back against uh, tobacco taxation because the argument is that it will increase smuggling um, and looking at, you know, the way that argument often breaks down and the way that, you know, often we can increase uh, taxation on these things without um, uh, without increasing smuggling as much is something that I've gotten really, really interested in, um, especially because in, in this particular um, context, the impact on health and people's lives is so substantial. So I, I hope I'll do a bit more on that. And I think also um, the effect on, of all of this on how we think about state capacity has gotten really, really interesting to me. Like, I mean, uh, we've mentioned a couple of times the way states get involved in this. And um, I think that says something about how we conceptualize what states can do. Um, and the different ways in which states can um, exercise power and exercise influence beyond, you know, just cutting things off and by changing the ways in which they influence them, which they regulate them or tolerate them. So I think what all of that means for how we think about the state as well, we'll, we'll hopefully dig, be able to dig into a bit more in the future. It's fascinating. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Florian, for joining us on the Ideas podcast. Thank you very much, Sana. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, the only thing I wanted to mention is uh, just to again highlight that uh, the book is available entirely for free online for anyone who wants to check it out. If they go on www.smuggling.page, uh, the entire book as a PDF, as well as every single chapter as a PDF is available online. Um, thank you very much to the London School of Economics um, for, for supporting that. Um, and yes, yeah, so anyone who's found this podcast interesting, hopefully can check it out online. And thank you so much, Sana, for, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, both of you. It was fascinating. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.